0: pod conversations about creativity, community, and the things that matter.
1: I think that this moment of Me Too and Time's Up is one where we can call upon men to take a public stand for the prevention of sexual assault and harassment and for healthy masculinities. And I think that we need to have a public conversation about healthy masculinities broadly. And I think that this is a great moment uh, to be doing it. Mm-hmm. And the Men's Story Project offers a structure and a platform for men to share some of their own personal, less often heard stories on these topics.
0: That's Dr. Josie Lehrer from the Men's Story Project, our guest on this episode of Fusapod. I'm Shaun Huang.
1: Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Josie Lair. I am founder and director of the Men's Story Project, and I'm also an affiliated senior researcher at the University of California, San Francisco's Bixby Center for Global Reproductive Health.
0: Thanks so much for joining us today, Josie. Can you tell me more about the Men's Story Project, more about what it is and how you got there?
1: The Men's Story Project is a movement building project for healthy masculinity. Um, And the basic format for the project is pretty straightforward, it's uh, the creation of live productions, public events, um, where curated groups of boys and men and folks who identify with maleness in any kind of way share very personal stories that they've crafted uh, with a live audience. And those stories have the purpose of examining and challenging masculinity norms and talking about a wide range of health and justice issues that are entwined with notions of masculinity, uh, but through a very personal lens. Uh, so men have spoken about topics including how they unlearned homophobia or what it's been like to be on the receiving end of homophobia or transphobia and how they came to a place of self-assertion and pride despite you know, those forms of oppression or despite um, ableism, racism, stereotypes put upon them uh, based on identities that they hold. Um, men have spoken about their own former perpetration of intimate partner violence. Uh, they've spoken about having witnessed intimate partner violence in their homes growing up and the kind of father that they are or want to be in contrast to what they witnessed. Men have sp- given thanks you know, for sources of joy and beauty and mentorship in their life. Uh, so I'd like to say overall that the project is about celebrating and challenging. You know, on the one hand giving thanks for sources of strength and beauty, and acknowledging those, and on the other hand, pointing out with their own personal stories some of the costs of dominant masculinity norms in their own lives. And the events are then filmed to create locally relevant documentaries and social media and accompanying educational tools.
0: I just wanted to drill down maybe to help our listeners who are less familiar with gender studies Mm -hmm. or health to understand, and especially in this time of Me Too and... Mm -hmm we're hearing more terms like toxic masculinity, mm-hmm. and it's, you mentioned the term healthy masculinity, which is mm-hmm. maybe the, the opposite of that. So can you help us understand more about what you mean by this masculinity, or even masculinities, for That's folks right. who maybe less yeah. familiar with that? Yeah,
1: yeah. so the, the, the best word is masculinities, plural, so thank you for that. To take a, the step back, social notions of masculinity are socially constructed, right? They change and they vary across time and place. And so there isn't any one true, correct, cosmic, universal way to, quote-unquote, be a man. The phrase, be a man, is invented. <laughs> yeah. And so this, this, the meaning of the word masculinity is plural, in my view, is to say that there are as many ways to be a male human being in the world as there are male-identified human beings. Uh, and that there doesn't have to be one code or one way to, quote-unquote, be a man. And to challenge that notion uh, that there is just one way. Uh, Toxic masculinity, the way that I would define it, is any conceptualization of masculinity that a person has um, that leads them to do harm to themselves or others in in the aim of fulfilling uh, their idea of what it means to be a man. And it's important to say that there are many forms of preventable pain and suffering um, that exist that are very directly related to how it is that boys and men are trying to prove or demonstrate their masculinity on a daily basis. You know, so when we look at, and I'll just list some of them, sure. you know, to be systematic, right? So when we think about men's violence against women, sexual, physical, economic, emotional, spiritual, and so on, men's violence against women, uh, violence between men, uh, homophobic bullying and harassment, uh, transphobic bullying and harassment, um, school shootings. Uh, It's been argued, and studies have found, that homophobic bullying and men's boys trying to assert some masculinity and power plays a significant role in their choice to carry those out. Um, boys, the leading cause of death uh, in boys, uh, from the latest study that I read, is car accidents and they're often with their friends, <laughs> their male friends in the car. Uh, men have higher rates of substance abuse than women, they have higher rates of completed suicides than women, even though women are diagnosed with depression more often, um, because they more often use the more lethal and manly means, manly in quotes, of guns. Um, so th- and men's cancers are caught later. Men seek mental health care less uh, than women because they're being stoic and manly. Um, and even just on a more mundane level or more commonplace, um, you know, just emotional bonds between men uh, often aren't as as rich uh, because men aren't as willing to confide and seek support emotionally from their male friends. So there's a very wide range of health and justice issues and gender inequality writ large, right, at the individual, interpersonal, at the interpersonal level and structurally. Mm-hmm. There is a very wide range of health and justice issues that are deeply entwined with social notions of how men and boys should be as men. I should also name HIV AIDS, and other sexually transmitted infections, right? Um, In terms of the gender dynamics that that produce uh, the distribution that we see of HIV around the world. My interest in working in this realm of promoting healthy masculinities comes from a health and justice perspective you know that all humans deserve an equal opportunity to live with health peace and justice you know and the t- the issue of masculinity is, is a very high leverage one you know and so my question when i was starting to think about this was where is the public dialogue you know if, if this is such a significant health and justice topic uh, and challenge how can we increase uh, people's awareness of this issue and how can we generate public dialogue on the topic in a way that is locally and socially relevant and not so boxy, <laughs> you know right. in a way that's personal and right. uh, emotional
0: so you're not kind of preaching as an academic or as a public health person but you're letting people in your show the men who are sharing their mm-hmm. stories to kind of share their own perspectives to make that larger social and cultural commentary
1: so the way the men's story project is structured is the following. So I initially produced and directed several live productions in Berkeley, San Francisco, and in Chile, where my family is from. And those productions got very strong, positive feedback from audience members and presenters, You know, people saying this is revolutionary, this is already historic, this needs to be happening all over the planet. I wrote a training guide and a license for groups to create their own productions.
0: So it's not a script, you're just giving... There's a method for them to source their own men, storytellers, and they're telling original stories with each production. Right?
1: That's right. Yeah, yeah. So there, there's no script that I... I haven't produced any script, <laughs> to be very clear. These are uh, men and folks who identify with maleness in any kind of way, sharing their own personal stories in front of a live, local audience of their peers and community. And each local production team is working on their production and there's a process for the presenters you know to get together and hone and deepen their pieces in community and learn together and be in dialogue together and build relationships amongst themselves Uh, and then they share those stories in that in those public events uh, which are accompanied with an audience presenter dialogue with a resource and action fair for folks to find personal support resources and social engagement opportunities. The Men's Story Project has created a resource in terms of this toolkit for creating your own productions wherever
0: you may be in the world. So can you talk more about the specific process? So Mm -hmm. you're staging a production or one of your licensees is staging a production. How do they find men to tell their stories? And what is the the kind of hands-on process of helping people to be vulnerable to open up and to structure their stories? Having listened to a few from your real, the stories are really powerful, right? But how do you get to that point?
1: I'll say one of the things that I have been very moved by um, is just to learn about the power of overtly stating. You know, With this project, our intention is to create an unusual public moment of truth. And the invitation for you as presenters is to really say it. You know, the, the question of, if you could really say it, what would it be? And we that's what we want to hear.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so I have been moved by how responsive presenters have been to that invitation. And then I have been moved by audience members really seeing that Seeing it, you know, I mm-hmm. think that we as human beings are wired viscerally to grasp authenticity. Sure. <laughs> like we see, we know it when we see it. Um, and so I've been moved by the extent to which audience members really appreciate that because it is not common, you know, to, to hear men sharing these very deeply personal kinds of stories in public. Um, so in terms of the process, thus far, um, there are several campuses that have been creating their own productions, and there are a number in. In production right now for 2018 um, in the US, UK, Canada and South Africa. The most straightforward approach is to simply put out a call for submissions uh, and the campus group that initiates it looks for co-sponsoring organizations on the campus uh, and they co-sponsor and they put out that call for submissions all over the place. Um, a group of presenters is selected based on their draft submissions uh, and then there's a five to eight week group process uh, of play shops, so-called play shops, uh, where the presenters get to know each other, they share their motivations for participating in the project, uh, and they hone and deepen their pieces in community, workshopping their pieces, talking about the issues that they're addressing in their pieces, maybe watching TED Talks or other Men's Story Project videos together and talking about that content, uh, and building, building community and learning together. Presenters actually did an evaluation study of the project where we interviewed audience members and presenters and there was a research team that conducted the interviews. We found that presenters really valued this group process. There were some that said this was the first time they had ever felt safe in a group of men and that they really valued the opportunity to learn with others to work alongside shoulder to shoulder with men of identities and backgrounds very different from their own, in many cases, you know, with whom they had never been in contact before on a personal level, we've really found uh, this process to be one that's very appreciated by the presenters. And in terms of just a, in terms of movement building, I want to point out also that a really helpful strategy for getting co-sponsoring groups together and placing these projections front and center on campus is uh, for those co- co-sponsoring groups ideally to include the Interfraternity Council, mm-hmm. ROTC, athletic teams, you know, as well as the LGBT Center, the Men's Resource Center or Gender Resource Center, mm-hmm. Sexual Assault Prevention and Response, Multicultural Diversity Committee, etc. So that you have a, a group of co-sponsoring groups that has overwhelming credibility from the outset. Right. <laughs> you know, there, there's a phrase, overwhelming credibility, that I heard that you know, I like, you know, where right. you just start off and it, with a bang on campus, you know, and say these eight groups have come together in a pretty unprecedented act of solidarity and common cause to put on this revolutionary thing, you right. know. And when and when students see that, it's it's no longer marginalizable. You, sure. you can't just say, oh, it's the poets over there doing that thing, right? <laughs> you know, and it's it
0: goes back to that masculinities thing, right, where you're embracing these different groups from the frats to the theater kids. And it's not just about like, hey, you know, the jocks are bad because they do things to women that we don't like, or, you know, it's about kind of embracing everybody so that they can join this movement.
1: Absolutely, you know, I think I wanna be very clear, you know, that from my personal standpoint, male human beings are, are, human beings and our beautiful humans, and I think that all of us humans are oriented toward goodness. <laughs> you know, so I, I absolutely um, and have, have seen and learned with this project you know, that I, I think that m- most and maybe all, I don't know about all, most men at some point in their life have felt uncomfortable with some aspect of how they were being taught, raised, pressured um, to be a quote-unquote man and yet where's the public dialogue right and i think that that discomfort that many boys and men have felt certainly extends you know in frat amongst men who are part of frats or athletic teams or military or groups that we associate more with hegemonic masculinity with dominant notions of masculinity you know and i think that part of the effort of this movement is to help everyone see that there's a place for them to talk about these things and to help make it normal for men to look critically at male norms and to start to question them, to start looking at their impacts across diverse domains and to start thinking about how they themselves can be actors for uh, making a more equitable world.
0: So I wonder if you have some specific stories of men that you've worked with mm. and how you saw their process in terms of telling their stories and how that transformed maybe themselves or even those around them.
1: So let's see so one person comes to mind uh, who shared a story uh, about his experience having grown up being physically abused by his dad uh, and when his dad would be violent toward him he would tell him to not cry and to be a man. His father taught him had a fight in a very vicious way with other boys, uh, telling telling him that he should never let them get back up. This young man also talked about violence that he perpetrated against a female partner and violence that he perpetrated against himself, physical violence. Um, And he talked about his journey of of reflection and change, about getting to a point where he felt that he had hit bottom um, and that his life absolutely had to change or it would end. And he talked about how he sought help. Uh, He joined some support groups. He reached out to women in his life who he saw as uh, potential mentors and teachers and supporters. And he allowed himself to feel his emotions more deeply. And he put himself through a process of reflection and uh, committed himself to changing. He shared with me, and he participated in the Men's Story Project on, with several productions in California, and he shared with me that um, he felt that sharing his piece publicly uh, was healing on a number of fronts, including uh, that it led him to have a sense of public accountability to stick with his commitment to not be, mm-hmm. not to not use violence, um, and that it strengthened his own sense of himself as, as, a, as an actor for social change, um, and that it was helpful to see or to feel that maybe his story, sharing his story could help others, other men, see that change was possible, and that there is a journey of change and reflection that they could embark on. And so that, That's one example. There's another man who, it took him a year to decide to participate in the Men's Story Project. And when he did, he shared a story about having grown up witnessing domestic violence and the pain and fear that that led him to feel on an ongoing, long-term basis, um, preparing, being ready to kill the abuser um, if he were to to return. Um, And he later in his life became a defense attorney, a pro bono defense attorney, for a woman who had been incarcerated for contributing to the death of her abuser. Uh, but wrongfully incarcerated in terms of, you know, how the whole case went down. And um, he said that participating in the Men's Story Project led him to go from a feeling of uh, victimhood to survivorship and led him to see that there was strength that he could draw from the experiences that that he had had. And he actually went on to write a full-length memoir. So first he shared his piece uh, from the Men's Story Project on NPR, Mm -hmm. uh, on Snap Judgment. And he was also getting feedback from people just locally, like walking down the street. Apparently, you know, someone stopped him and said, "You know, thank you." Or, you know, and so I think, and so he ultimately wrote a full-length memoir uh, that included a lot of uh, discussion of of this element of having witnessed domestic violence in his home. And he went on a book tour, a Hyperion Hachette, you know, publication and a national book tour. Um, so. And another presenter, you know, said for example that participating in the project was the entree into gender justice activism. Another presenter in Chile ended up writing a book about fatherhood in the context of divorce. Presenters have described prejudice reduction because they were they found themselves uh, having the opportunity to interact with men of identities and backgrounds like I said that, you know, with whom they may have not they had not uh, interacted deeply with before. So for the presenters overall, um, a lot of really interesting findings, you know, healing, empowerment, this notion of you know transformation in the narrative, uh, where um, prejudice reduction, a greater understanding of intersectionality, you know, so it's been very an increased social justice activism and gender justice activism, and an increased sense of themselves as as activists for social change. So it's it's really been great to see that.
0: That sounds amazing. You mentioned earlier that there are productions going on in different countries now. And even within the US as a multicultural society, so much of these different masculinities are kind of culturally dependent or they're shaped by our cultural backgrounds, ethnic backgrounds. Have you noticed anything over the years, sort of patterns about how this works across different cultures and if there are any sort of similarities differences and and how how you incorporate that kind of cultural difference especially since it's international now um, getting men to tell their stories or to share them publicly
1: in terms of how notions of masculinity vary across communities or geographies um, or how they might be similar you know yeah there are certain themes that are. Common, you know. So pretty much anyone of you asked them, "What are some common stereotypical notions of masculinity?" You know, if you had to put a bunch of descriptors in in a box, you know, what mm-hmm. is the man box? What are what are the thing How are the ways that men should be in order to be called a real man? Right? Like in in the U.S. Uh, in most U.S. contexts, you know, men have to be, and we can name them together, right? <laughs> right. Stoic, strong, physically tough, and able. Um, a leader, uh, ideally, you know, financially secure, a provider for their family, and then we get into heterosexual. Uh, White men have more power than men of other uh, race, ethnicities, without physical disabilities. uh, Christian men have more social power than men of other uh, religions, etc. You know, so I think that across many societies, some of those notions uh, persist, right? And That And and then with this man box concept, an interesting question, there's actually an exercise called the man box where people are invited to say, you know, what is the ideal most powerful man in society? Mm -hmm. Right. And then the question is, well, so if somebody doesn't fit into that man box, if somebody doesn't have all those attributes, what do they get called? Right. (laughs) Right. And then the words come. Right. Fag, sissy, queer, weak, pussy, girl. Right. And that highlights that... In many communities, the worst thing that a man or boy can be is like a girl, Uh Um, effeminate. It's equated with weakness. And so the consequence of that is that men are taught, boys are taught from a young age that you must cut off and not express any part of yourself that could be associated with femininity, stereotypical femininity. And that is a violence toward boys and men. Uh, When they are asked to literally cut off um, and disassociate half of themselves, right. you know, emotionally in terms of expressions of anything that might be soft um, or viewed as weak. You know, expressing uh, emotions other than, let's say, anger, you right. know, or some of these yeah. more powerful uh, things. Or, you know, and I'm speaking in kind of um, general terms, and I know that. For example, like young men today, you know, it doesn't necessarily... I think that there's an increase in comfort um, with with emotional expression and and so forth, and there are more progressive views at hand. So I'm just speaking in very general, stereotypical terms, because in terms of the pressures that boys and men feel, I think that those pressures still do often apply. And it's important to just do the work of helping break that stuff down.
0: Right, that even if individual men and boys... In their own lives, choose to buck some of these stereotypes. They still, in that man box activity, they sort of know what the rules are and they know what the social sanctions are for from deviating from those rules.
1: Yeah, and I and I do think that there are increasing you know social spaces and groups where where boys and men don't feel utterly constrained by that stuff. You know, I think that um, things are changing, but I do think that there is still enough of a predominance of. Uh, these stereotypical or dominant masculinities and, like, notions of manhood that cause harm, that there's still a lot to talk about. <laughs> sure. So, yeah, I, I want to be clear. Like, I'm not saying that everyone is subject to, you know, that, that everyone, every man in the world or boy in the world is feeling imprisoned by toxic notions of masculinity or enacting those, and no- putting those notions into action. But I think that they are um, still a force to be reckoned with in a major way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they, are very, they are real.
0: And it's interesting in our work, you know, in design, we are, and especially when you're kind of prototyping something, right? you're creating a new product or service that doesn't quite exist yet. We talk about these prototypes as boundary objects, which is this idea that, you know, my team has an idea, we're creating something for other people who are not part of the team to kind of experience that idea even if the the gadget doesn't really work yet, right? It's sort of like, it's a prop in a play is a good analogy. And so it seems like these stories are these boundary objects that make visible all of these forces that we all know about, but it's sort of, you know to mix these metaphors a little bit the the fish in the water thing Mm -hmm. right of like we're bound by our identities we live in them because we are people who live in the cultures that Mm -hmm. we belong to or have to negotiate Um, but by explicitly telling these stories we're we're pointing to like hey the some of the some of the stuff is actually just made up and socially constructed and we internalize it ourselves Mm -hmm. or other people enforce these kinds of norms on us.
1: That's right. And it's funny that you use that metaphor of the fish noted, noting the water because I've actually drawn a, a goldfish in a bowl mm-hmm. with a little question mark over his head you know, in, in some lectures that I've given. Um, and I think, and researchers actually found uh, that programs that are so-called gender transformative that involve participants in naming and critically looking at what the gender norms have been are in their community, the gender norms that they have dealt with um, personally, um, and what some of the costs of abiding by those gender norms has been, or just what the costs are even if you know for them as people subjected to them in some kind of way. Um, and then asking themselves what they think about it all. Mm-hmm. You know, and if if these norms and demands and expectations and roles aren't working uh, for for the for the individual or for the society. Um, then asking, well, what would work? You know, and the idea of, of these gender transformative programs is to support people in seeing the benefits of gender equality. Um, and I also want to speak more broadly about uh, you know, all forms of equality. Mm-hmm. You know, so I personally would define a healthy masculinity or you know, healthy masculinities as including a value placed on equality for all people you know, of all identities. Um, So absolutely, I think a first step is to notice the water, to not just take it for granted as this kind of neutral, uh, non-existent, you know, stuff that we, whatever, you know, noticing the water and thinking and asking yourself, what is the reality? You know, what are the connections between the gender norms that exist and a lot of different health and justice issues? What what are the costs of some of the entrenched norms and paradigms uh, that are at hand? And if it's not working, or if some aspects of it are not working, what would be better? And then how can I take action in my own life, in my own relationships and communications, and so on? And how can I take action as a social justice actor, you know, right. to, to make change?
0: So let's talk more about the audience, right? What is there's coming to the show, being inspired by that? Do you have different asks, different calls to action for your audience? Or what are the ways that people can participate beyond going to the shows, since you, you mm-hmm. talked about this being a movement building yeah. kind of project so how how does the audience get involved
1: so first i want to clarify i don't think of these as shows i call them productions or presentations because uh, the presenters are not putting out a performance mm-hmm. <laughs> it's you know people are sharing very intimate details of right. their lives real lives real stories that's right so um just semantics but it's it's an important one um, for the audience uh the invitation that i have given or the recognition of the audience that I have offered um, on the few occasions when I introduced the project on stage uh, was to invite the audience uh, to really think of themselves as not just passive audience members but as active witnesses to what's being shared uh, with the understanding that listening is is an active interchange you know and that a storyteller's sharing uh, really it, it, it's, it's important uh, and it's, it's significant when it is received by an active witness. Um, so I, I want to emphasize just the activeness right. of their participation there in, in the audience. Um, there is, like I mentioned, the dialogue with the presenters afterward. Um, and it's actually very useful for audience members from a learning standpoint to be able to hear the reflections of fellow community members. Mm-hmm. Um, it's part of social learning, uh, theoretically, to see like this, this kind of negotiation <laughs> that's happening, right? So like people on stage just presented a lot of powerful stuff that shakes up ideas and shakes up emotions and is aiming to shake up the status quo, right? And sure. the, the dominant paradigm and the patriarchy and everything, right? And then it's really helpful for audience members to be able to share with each other and hear from each other how, how that all landed for each other, for them, right? And so this begins a social learning process. And in our study, um, audience members told us that they engaged in a lot of dialogue with people in their own social networks after you know they were they went to the production. Uh, there were some women who went on a mission, like on their in their dorms, like telling everyone that they could could find about this and like telling them to go the next day and just talking about the issues. You know, there's a woman who called her father. There's. Um, a woman who ended up having a huge, like, revelatory ex- dialogue with her ex-boyfriend. Yeah, so, I, so the social learning element um, is something that has been found in research to be very significant in entertainment education and narrative communication. Like, if you're thinking about... there's a whole broader subject here, mm-hmm. so I'll just try and focus and say that the social learning topic is, is important. You know, that you put something powerful into a collective space, into a social space, um, people then have to negotiate with that and talk about it and deal with it and, t- you know, think about what of that do I want to maybe bring into my life? Or, and, and that kind of social learning happens, you know, with, in conversation with people in your own social networks. So that, that's one thing. And then in terms of further engagement, something that I really want to encourage campuses and groups to do is to think about creating ongoing collectives. So that the momentum that's created and the community that's created with this project can become an ongoing social space on a given campus or in a given community. And I want to leave that open to them to, to think about. But it is really important when you're thinking about social change to have groups that people can affiliate with. Sure. And this project definitely creates that. So it's, it's up to the local groups to think about how they want to create a new social affiliational option on their campus or if there's an existing group, you know, that this can become joined into, etc.
0: That's so interesting this theme of social learning that you bring up. Cause it also reminds me that even though these are first person narratives of individual self-identified men and their stories that their identity their masculinity their masculinities yes they're individual but they're defined by their social context right by the people around them and so it's requires that engagement the, the social learning as you say for them to to kind of make sense of it it's not just a sort of individual people making sense of it by telling their stories but they have to other people have to engage with those stories too in that broader context which i guess is reminding me of some of the things that we're doing in our design practice that we call community-centered design, right? Where there's this movement called human-centered design or user-centered design where it's about, oh, let's understand the individual and, you know, her needs as a consumer and address those needs. But those often, those methods often ignore the broader social context or cultural context where, you know, not every product is just an individual product or service, right? It, It exists. Socially and just as you are doing with basically helping people address their identities and reshape their identities through the storytelling sort of an inherently social process
1: so I'll tell you that um, in our evaluation study where we focus groups were done with audience members, many audience members, uh, male and female identified uh, said that the that the presenters functioned as role models for them mm. yeah, so when the presenters are sharing their stories, I think they're they're serving as de facto role models, you know, and, and certainly as works in progress. And um, that's actually been an integral part of the introduction also, that we're not here, you know, with the idea that we're presenting completed and perfected human works. <laughs> and... So, so yeah, the the presenters are works in progress, you know, but for the audience members, like I say, a a significant theme that came up in those uh, focus groups was viewing the presenters as role models of a lot of different things of um, the ability to claim a personal strength in the face of homophobia or transphobia or racism or ableism, um, the ability, the capacity to be vulnerable in public. Um, and to, sh- and to, to be growing in public and to share their journeys of growth in public. The ability to uh, grow up amidst a lot of difficulty and emerge as a leader of their community. Um, personal strength of a variety of kinds, a willingness to change and reflect and make commitments. You know, so, yeah, I mean, I think basically the, what I have seen with the project is that for the presenters, the process of crafting their pieces and being in the group process. Can be a very growthful one, you know, where, you know, because we have life experiences, right? right? And then the meaning that we make of those life experiences can 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 shift over time, and as we gain more language or concepts or experiences or exposure to people of other identities, or we just start thinking about things in a different way or with different possibilities in mind, you know, our our own sense of our life experience and the meaning of those experiences can shift. So all of this to say, yes. <laughs> you know, I think that for the presenters, the process of crafting their pieces and presenting them in public is very dynamic and generative in terms of meaning. Um, and for the audience members, uh, what, what I'm finding is that there's also a lot that they gain in terms of aff- affirmation, a sense of life possibility, shifts in worldview, prejudice reduction as well. Um, etc. You know, from being exposed to these first-person stories of someone just right, standing right in front of them sharing, sharing content that they relate to personally or that they've never been exposed to before and find common ground with unexpectedly. Um, so there's a lot of different ways in which meaningful engagement has been happening.
0: Josie, it seems like the Men's Story Project has gone through an amazing journey over the last 10 years or so. So what's next for you and for the project?
1: Thanks for that question. So I want 2018 to be a tipping point for this project for viral spread. Uh, The Men's Story Project is poised and ready to spread virally as a movement building project around the world. Uh, We have a strong foundation. So we have 14 live productions to date. We have many in the works right now, as I mentioned. Uh, We have a phenomenal advisory council, which includes uh, Michael Kimmel and Jackson Katz and Van Jones and other leaders uh, in the field and leading activists. Uh, We have been sponsored by Amnesty International. It's been on CNN. There's an evaluation study that's been done proof of concept uh, with documented impacts for audience members and presenters. So I think that the project is really ready for its tipping point. And I want to emphasize that we have a training toolkit, license, training and consulting available. Just want to invite folks to check out menstoryproject.org and to be in touch uh, if you'd like to connect and explore collaboration. And we're really ready to work with all groups that are interested.
0: Great, thank you so much. We'll put the links up on our podcast page as well, fusa.com slash podcast. Dr. Josie Lehrer, thank you so much for joining me today.
1: My pleasure. Thank you for having me.
0: You've been listening to Pod, a podcast about creativity, community, and the things that matter. The music you've been listening to this episode is a track called Deluge, from the album Sea Change by Cellophane Sam, accessed from the Free Music Archive. Pod is produced by Rob Nannis, Jared Reed, and me. I'm Li Shan Huang.